Please open your Bible to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. It's a joy to be with you again. I thank God for Pastor Trent Hunter and the other pastors here, and I thank God for Heritage Bible Church. It's a joy to be with you. Here in Psalm 97, I'd like us to read verses 1 and 2. Psalm 97, 1 begins, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Here's a key phrase, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You see the word justice there. This sermon is about justice. What is justice? That's what we need to spend time uh, asking and answering. What is justice? The world has taken that Bible word and redefined it by attaching various adjectives on front of it. So I'd like to begin with five examples of common ways that you might be hearing another word modify justice and ask you, is that really justice? Example one, LGBT justice. According to this view, everyone must affirm and celebrate the ideology of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And that includes sexual orientations or gender identities that don't correspond to heterosexual norms. That's LGBT justice. So it leads me to ask, is, is that justice? I think justice would look more like Genesis 19.24, which says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Here's a second example. Reproductive justice. So according to this view, pregnant people, and that's the new term, it's not women, because men can get pregnant too. Uh, Pregnant people have a human right to have personal bodily autonomy, to keep or to kill the unborn baby in one's womb. That's reproductive justice. So I'd ask, is that justice? I think that justice would look more like what God commanded the Israelites in Leviticus 20, verse 2. Anyone who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. Here's the third example. Distributive justice. Distributive justice. According to this view, society must distribute or allocate power and resources so that there are equal outcomes. That's distributive justice. Is that justice? I think that justice is that God-ordained authorities impartially punish law-breaking, and they right wrongs. More about that later. Here's a fourth example. Racial justice. According to this view, society must remove systemic racial disparities in areas such as wealth, income, education, and employment. So justice is equal outcomes, and a failure to have equal outcomes is racism. Is that justice? Again, I think that justice is that society treats all ethnicities impartially. More on that later. Here's a fifth example. This one's the most complicated. Social justice. 
probably heard that term before. So in order to understand what social justice typically means in our culture, you have to back up and understand a bigger concept called critical theory. So in a nutshell, here's what critical theory is. It affirms four beliefs, and I'm borrowing from a friend named Neil Shenby. So here are the four beliefs. Number one, society is divided into two groups of people. You have the oppressors, think of them as the people up top, and the oppressed at the bottom. So the oppressors have all the power, and they're evil bullies, and the oppressed don't have power, and they're innocent victims. So that's the first belief here. Second, oppressors, that's the dominant group, oppressors maintain their power by imposing their ideology on everyone. And the third belief is that lived experience gives the oppressed people special access to truth about their oppression. And then fourth belief, and this is where social justice comes in, the answer to this problem, this disparity, these two groups of people that are warring against each other, is that society needs social justice. That is, society needs to pursue equal outcomes by deconstructing and eliminating all forms of social oppression. And social oppression includes not just disparities regarding race and ethnicity, but also gender and sexual orientation and religion and physical ability and mental ability and economic class. Maybe you've heard the term woke or wokeness. So that's referring to the state of being consciously aware of and awake to this social injustice. So the term woke is it's a shorthand to describe someone who, whether consciously or unconsciously, has adopted grievances and activism rooted in cultural Marxism and this critical theory, especially related to these, these intersections, this, this uh, intersectional matrix of race and gender and sexuality. So that's social justice. Is that justice? Again, I think that justice is that God-ordained authorities oppose partiality in civic life by impartially punishing unjust perpetrators and righting wrongs. I'll say more about that later. That's just five examples. Uh, I think I might have some of your attention. Uh, This is all over society, right? Uh, All these different ways of describing justice. What do we make of how the world has redefined justice? Well, in order for us to evaluate those definitions, we have to answer a more fundamental question. What does God mean when He uses the word justice in the Bible? That's the standard. That's the reality we want to understand and live in light of. So it's, just, it's crucial that we define justice correctly. It's a Bible word, and we don't want to give this one up. We don't want to surrender the word justice to other people to use as a plastic Gumby word to refashion in their own image. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10 something that encourages me here. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what are those strongholds? We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that's my my mindset in this sermon is to do that. Our spiritual warfare includes destroying arguments that rebel against the Creator's good design. And that's why there's a battle for the dictionary. 
The world has been taking words from the Bible and redefining them. Words like justice, and we could add woman and marriage and many other words. We want to understand what these Bible words actually mean. We want to define these words in a way that that lines up with reality. So let's do that with justice by considering five interlocking aspects of justice. So the sermon has five headings, five interlocking aspects of justice. The first is divine justice, God's character. Second is imputed justice, justification. The third is imparted justice, progressive sanctification. The fourth is public justice, impartiality in society. And the fifth is ultimate justice, final judgment. So for each of those five aspects, you could write an entire book or a series of books. This is a huge topic. I'm going to be concise so that we can see the big picture of how these five aspects of justice correspond and integrate. So let's start with the source, aspect number one, divine justice, God's character. Now, this is an unusual sermon. It's not what you're used to where there's one main text that the preacher explains and applies. I'm preaching a topical sermon, which I don't recommend. But what I'm doing is answering the question, what does the whole Bible say about justice? So we're going to be all over the place. Uh, What I'll do is invite you to turn to one passage for each of the five headings. Your Bible's already open to Psalm 97. So look again at the second half of Psalm 97 too, which says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now that tells us that justice is a word that describes a reality that's true of God himself. So that's where we need to start when we're trying to understand this concept of justice. Now what I'm going to do next is just read a series of texts from Scripture that, that connect justice with God's character. So let this be like a waterfall just running through your, your soul. Listen to these texts. This is Genesis 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Deuteronomy 32 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 9 says that the Lord has established his throne for justice. Psalm 11 says the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Isaiah 5, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Jeremiah 9, I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Zephaniah 3, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Now that's just a sampling of how Scripture connects justice as an attribute of God himself. And you might have noticed another word that appeared parallel to justice frequently there. It's a word righteousness. Righteousness and justice often appear together in Scripture. So the standard of justice is not contemporary community standards or values. It's not your personal values. The standard of justice is God's righteousness. So justice and righteousness begin with God's own character. 
This can be confusing to us because in English, we tend to sharply distinguish justice and righteousness. So here's how we tend to do this in English. We think of justice as the legal quality of getting what you deserve. And we think of righteousness as the moral quality of being right. Well, the Hebrew word for righteousness and the Greek word for righteousness don't sharply distinguish those concepts. They can include both concepts. The the words concern having a right order in this fallen world. And to complicate things further, in English we can use a handful of words synonymously to to mean the same thing. Uh, So words like justice, righteousness, fairness, equity, impartiality. And historically, English speakers have used those in overlapping ways. But what makes it more complicated is that people are now using those same words in different ways, and you might hear it and think of it as meaning the old meaning, and people are are redefining them with new meanings. This gets very complicated. Uh, For example, uh, the words justice and righteousness are not always interchangeable, and this is using old, old definitions. So a person acting righteously also acts justly, it's not possible for a person to act uh, both righteously and unjustly. But the opposite's possible. You could act justly and unrighteously. If I'm, you're probably confused. Example, a judge could correctly uphold justice. He does justice, but his justice doing is motivated by unrighteous motives. So that's doing something just, but being unrighteous as you do it. I'm saying you can, that's possible, but the flip side isn't. And, and then... It's more complicated when people redefine the terms. Uh, So here are some terms that modern-day English speakers are redefining. It's the terms justice, fairness, and equity. So many people use those terms now to refer to equal outcomes. So they, they think that God is unfair if equal outcomes exist. So an example of an unequal outcome is that some people have more wealth than others. We must distinguish between equal outcomes and justice or fairness or equity or impartiality. Here's why. God is just and fair and equitable and impartial, but that does not mean that everyone experiences equal outcomes because God has the freedom to show undeserved kindness to whomever he wants. So let me just prove this. The case in point is the parable that Jesus gave about the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. You know the story. So the master gives each laborer what he deserves, and he gives some laborers more than they deserve. So to get justice is to get what you deserve. It's not unfair to give extra to some even when they're less deserving than others. As long as God gives each person what he deserves, he's not unfair when he sovereignly chooses to be undeservedly kind to some and not others. And do any of you deserve God's kindness? Uh, Not one of us does. God is always fair. All his ways are justice. So how would we define this term justice? Here's Here's the shortest way I know to define the term. I keep this in my back pocket. I use it all the time. Short definition of justice. Justice is getting what you deserve and giving others what they deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve and giving others 
what they deserve. So what someone deserves may be a reward, maybe a punishment. God gives others what they deserve because he's righteous. That's what it means to say that God is just. And that's what I mean by the term divine justice. God perfectly gives others what they deserve. So God's just, we're not. His just character is a foundational starting point for defining justice. And now we're ready to move a little faster to connect the, the justice or righteousness of God with imputed justice. So second aspect of justice is imputed justice, justification. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 17, Romans 1, 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1, 17. It begins with that phrase, the righteousness of God. That phrase occurs several other times in Romans, in in chapter 3 and in chapter 10. What does the righteousness of God refer to in Romans? Really important concept. And there are three basic options, though interpreters combine them in every possible way. So the three basic options for what does the righteousness of God refer to are, one, it's what God is, so it's his attribute of being righteous or just. So the opposite would be, the unrighteousness of God in Romans 1.17 would be, excuse me, the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17, the opposite would be verse 18, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's righteous, humans are unrighteous. It's what God is. That's, that could be what this refers to. A second option is it's what God gives. He gives a righteous status to sinful people. And this is in Romans 3.21 and 22 and other passages. So the metaphors from the law court, it's judicial. It's not about people living in a more righteous way. This is a gift of God legally declaring that people are righteous before him. It doesn't morally make them righteous. It doesn't transform them. It declares them to be righteous. So option one is what God is. Option two is what God gives. And option three is what God does. It's his activity of saving sinful people. He writes what is wrong. And my opinion is that I think it's too narrow to say that the righteousness of God refers to only one of those three concepts and not the other two. In my view, God's attribute of being righteous, that first option, what God is, is the fundamental concept. And in the context of Romans, that means that God gives this righteousness, this righteous status to unrighteous people, and it's his activity of saving people. It's a whole thing. So of the three options, I think his gift of a righteous status is most prominent in Romans, especially Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following. It's beautiful there. Uh, The righteousness of God refers primarily to God's positive attribute of being righteous, and then when, when sinful people experience that aspect of God, what happens? Well, God saves them by righteously giving them a righteous status, or he condemns them. And I'm I'm following a a commentator on Romans here named John Stott. He's with the Lord now, uh, but he put this so pithily. I want you to hear how how he says it. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He's done it through Christ, the righteous one, who died for the unrighteous, And he does it by faith when we put our trust in him and cry to him for mercy. 
The gospel reveals God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. I love that. So I like to say that the righteousness of God is it's, it's not only what God is when he justifies you, it's what he gives you when he justifies you. Romans 3.26 says that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God righteously righteouses the unrighteous. He justly justifies the unjust. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So that's imputed justice, justification. Now justification is distinct from, yet inseparably connected to, progressive sanctification. Aspect number three is imparted justice, progressive sanctification. Here I invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans 6. Romans 6, and we'll look at verses 15 to 18. Romans 6, verses 15 to 18. I'll start with Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Righteousness? Justice? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, slaves of justice. So now we're considering how justice relates to how Christians live. Romans 6 says that Christians are slaves of righteousness. We're slaves of justice. And this raises the issue of how justification relates to Christian living, progressive sanctification. One reason that we are Protestants and not Roman Catholics is that we define justification as God's declaring us to be righteous, not God's making us righteous. Justification is not God's making us righteous. That's progressive sanctification. So, for Roman Catholics, if I could draw this on a map for you, I'd say faith plus works, arrow, leads to, results in justification. For Protestants, faith, arrow, leads to or results in justification plus works. Again, the right view. Faith leads to or results in justification plus works. But even some Protestants especially advocates of what's called higher life theology, separate justification from transformation, from progressive sanctification. Now, I agree with John MacArthur when he writes this, that the whole point of Romans 6 is that God not only frees us from sin's penalty, justification, but he frees us from sin's tyranny as well, sanctification. Beautifully put. So progressive sanctification is distinct yet inseparable from justification. So let me kind of contrast them here. If you, had, if you had two columns, you had justification and progressive sanctification, how would they compare and contrast? Uh, for justification, you are instantly declared righteous. For progressive sanctification, God gradually makes you righteous. Very different. For justification, that's objective. It's judicial, not experiential. It's legal. For progressive sanctification, it's subjective. It's experiential. It's your daily experience. For 
justification, that's external, it's outside the believer. For progressive sanctification, it's internal, it's inside the believer. For justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed. It's received judicially. For progressive sanctification, Christ's righteousness is imparted. It's worked out experientially. For justification, God instantly removes sin's guilt and penalty. For progressive sanctification, God gradually removes sin's pollution and power. Justification does not change your character. Progressive sanctification gradually transforms your character. For justification, all Christians share the same legal standing. You can't be more justified than someone else. For progressive sanctification, Christians are at different stages of growth, different levels of maturity. And for justification, that is a single, instantaneous, completed act, once for all time, never repeated. But progressive sanctification is a continuing process, gradual, maturing, lifelong. So how do these two relate? Faith alone justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. God's grace, through the power of His Holy Spirit, ensures that the same faith that justifies a Christian also progressively sanctifies a Christian. So, imputed righteousness, imputed justice, justification, necessarily results in imputed righteousness, imputed justice, progressive sanctification. And because that's true, it's not surprising that the people to whom God has imputed justice and to whom God is imparting justice in progressive sanctification, those same people deeply care about public justice. Aspect number four, public justice, impartiality in society. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Micah 6 one of the 12 so-called minor prophets, Micah 6. I'd like to read what for some is the key text for a particular view of justice. Micah 6, verse 8. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, some Christians assume that Micah 6.8 supports a type of social justice. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment, but first, I'd like to share what my church's elders say in a document that we prepared called Ethnic Harmony Affirmations and Denials. I'm, I'm one of the pastors of what used to be Bethlehem Baptist Church. We're now called the North Church, so we are one church, three campuses. We became independent in February, um, and this is our elders prepared a statement, give a lot of thought to this, and it's just a paragraph here I'm going to read. Here's how we've addressed it in our church context. We affirm that the church must love and do justice, which entails treating all peoples from all ethnicities justly and encouraging its members to pursue justice in society. Justice is making righteous judgments according to the standard of God's righteousness. We recognize that individuals and groups with power have often exploited the vulnerable for their own gain, and that sinners can create unjust systems. And we have verse references supporting these statements. We should examine suspected examples of systemic injustice on their own merits, 
seeking to destroy ungodly strongholds and taking every thought captive to Christ. Although worldly systems of thought can make accurate observations, we reject all systems of thought that view relationships primarily through the lens of power. That is, those with more power are inherently oppressors, and those with less power are inherently oppressed. We deny that only those with more power can be guilty of showing ethnic partiality. Any person of any ethnicity can be guilty of showing ethnic partiality. That gives you a sense of where I'm coming from as I uh, talk about public justice. So public justice refers to impartiality in society. Impartiality is for you to get treated justly, fairly, equitably, and treating everyone else that way. In other words, justice is getting what you deserve and not taking from others what they deserve. Here's how Deuteronomy 27, 19 puts it. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. So that tips us off that justice is something deserved, justice due. So an impartiality that pleases God goes hand in hand with compassion. These are two different concepts. You don't want to mix them up, but they do go together. Uh, Compassion is sympathetic pity and concern for those who are suffering. And that's good. We should have that. The author of Hebrews commends his audience. You had compassion on those in prison, Hebrews 10, 34. The Bible teaches that we should treat people impartially, which includes working for fair systems and structures, and that we should look out for the weak and the vulnerable. God's people under the Mosaic Covenant were responsible to uphold public justice in their theocracy. And this is helpful for us as we think through those principles and apply them in our context. So the Old Testament emphasizes public justice as both justly punishing wrongdoers and justly defending the wrong. Listen to that in Psalm 72. May the king judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. That's Psalm 72, verses 2 and 4. And this illustrates what I think is a transcultural principle. This wasn't true for just Israelites. That public justice includes punishing unjust oppressors. And that should go hand in hand with compassionately caring for those who are unjustly oppressed. Now, Amos, the prophet Amos, is the most famous example of an Old Testament prophet who rebukes Israelites for public injustice. Here are some examples. Amos 5 says, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos 6 says, You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Like, what were they doing that got that rebuke? An example in Amos 5 and 8, Amos rebukes some Israelites for exorbitantly taxing poor people and thus trampling them. Similarly, the prophet Micah, as we started off in Micah 6, the prophet Micah rebukes some Israelites in Micah 3 for metaphorically cannibalizing fellow Israelites. And that leads to his famous rhetorical question that we read, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? So, Here's where I'd like to dig in there more. What does Micah mean when he says do justice in Micah 6, 8? Does do justice mean 
that we should do the political policies that social progressives advocate. And that's what many people commonly assume. Well, it says do justice, so it must mean that. I don't think so. I agree with how Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert answer that question in a book that's called What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. So here's what they say about Micah 6.8. Micah means we should not steal, bribe, or cheat. Conversely, we should, when we are in the position to do so, render fair and impartial judgments. And at all times, in whatever calling, we should do good, not evil. Doing justice is not the same as redistribution, nor does it encompass everything a godly Israelite would do in obedience to Yahweh. Injustice refers to those who oppress, cheat, or make judicial decisions with partiality. Doing justice, then, implies fairness, decency, and honesty. Just as importantly, we see that the righteous person does more than simply refrain from evil. He positively seeks to help the weak, give to the needy, and, as he is able, address situations of rank injustice. That's well said. And I just shared examples from Amos and Micah that are rebuking God's people for injustice. But the Old Testament prophets do not rebuke only Israelites for injustice. They also rebuke the nations. And here's an example from Amos that hits close to home. Amos 1.13 uh, Amos rebukes the nations for cruelty, such as ripping open pregnant women. Amos 1.13. Public justice matters in all cultures. Many people in our culture today think that so-called reproductive justice is a human right. It's a justice issue. It's not a justice issue because God's righteousness is what makes human rights right. So, what humans call rights are right only if God says they're right. The so-called reproductive justice is actually a flagrant injustice. So one way to define doing justice according to the Bible is making righteous judgments. That is, doing justice is doing what's right according to the standard of God's will and character as He's revealed it in His Word. Justice, according to the Bible contrasts with justice according to our secular age, in which justice equals rights. So our, our secular culture offers the fruit, the fruit without the root. So our, our, our secular culture wants this fruit of rights without any standard of righteousness for measuring which rights are right. And as such, people learn to enshrine whatever they want with the language of rights and justice. So justice effectively becomes, I deserve what I want, with the one caveat that others' rights should not be transgressed either. So if a woman wants to kill the unborn baby in her womb, it's her right because justice demands it. Or if a man wants to marry a man, it's his right because justice demands it. Or if a man wants to become a woman through surgery and hormones, it's his right because justice demands it. That's wrong thinking about rights. Well, what are some examples then of public injustice that Christians should be concerned about today? And there are lots of them. So in a World Opinions article in March 2022, Thaddeus Williams 
wisely, I think, presents four issues that our pursuit of justice should include, even if it's unpopular in our culture. So I'm going to paraphrase these four examples from Thaddeus Williams. The first example is abortion. Our pursuit of justice as Christians should include these tiny humans exterminated because larger humans consider them inconvenient or genetically inferior or too female. That's a justice issue. Second example is pornography and its connection to child porn and human trafficking and rape and domestic violence and impaired brain function and broken relationships and depression. Our pursuit of justice should include the victims of the exploitative pornography industry. That's a justice issue. Here's a third example. The persecution of believers around the world. So Christians are being targeted, imprisoned, beaten, raped, hanged, crucified, and bombed for claiming that Jesus is Lord. Our pursuit of justice should include the millions of Christians imprisoned or executed around the globe. That's a justice issue. And here's a fourth one, socialism. So the quest to achieve economic equality, that is equal outcomes between the rich and the poor through communist and socialist policies has resulted in more than 100 million deaths in the 20th century alone. That's the fruit of that ideology. Our pursuit of justice should include the desperately oppressed victims of far-left economic systems. That's a justice issue. That's just four examples. There are many more, but of the type of issues I think Christians should be concerned about. Now, we who are justified people care about public justice. Before I I move to the fifth and final aspect of justice, I just want to clarify something that I think is important to distinguish, and that is the obligation of individual Christians to do public justice from what God has commissioned the church to do. I think those are two distinct things. So that the mission of the church is the Great Commission. Make disciples. Make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commands us. God has commissioned the church collectively, acting corporately, to teach everything that Jesus commanded and to equip saints for the various ministries. And while the church and all the individuals within it care about alleviating present earthly injustices, we care especially about alleviating eternal suffering. So that's why we verbally proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord and call everyone to repent and believe. We don't minimize or dismiss public uh, injustice. We care about public justice. And at the same time, we recognize that God's ultimate justice is far weightier than public injustices. And that leads to our fifth and final aspect, ultimate justice, final judgment. So I invite you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah 9, Isaiah chapter 9, ultimate justice, final judgment. In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says this, and you may recall this from Handel's Messiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government 
and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right now, we are living in the already not yet period. The Messiah's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully here. We still await the Messiah's government that will uphold perfect justice and righteousness. In this life, we protest public injustice because we deeply desire that justice be served. And that day is coming. Final judgment refers to the day of the Lord, a common phrase in Scripture, the day of the Lord. That's when God will decisively judge and defeat His enemies and deliver and vindicate His people. God will perfectly and completely administer justice for all. And that's both terrifying and encouraging, isn't it? God's expressing His wrath with eternal punishment is retributive justice. God has, this is Romans 9, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction for this reason, because He desires to show His wrath and to make known His power. When God displays His wrath against sin, He's glorifying which attribute? His justice. He's glorifying His justice. Eternally punishing unrepentant sinners in hell shows that God is just. And when God fully and finally serves justice, we will be praising Him for it. Seven times in the final book of the Bible, people praise God for righteously judging and punishing His enemies. An example is Revelation eleven sixteen to 18. When God serves justice by judging and punishing His enemies, He deserves glory for His wrath and power. So, we very briefly just considered five aspects of justice in the Bible. We started with divine justice, God's character, and then moved to imputed justice, or justification, and imparted justice, progressive sanctification, which leads to our desire for public justice, impartiality in society, and finally, there is ultimate justice, final judgment. Now, I'll attempt to tie all five aspects of justice into a single sentence and then conclude with the prayer. I'm going to say the sentence twice. The just God justly justifies unjust people and progressively makes us just, which entails that we support public justice as we await God's ultimate justice. Say it one more time. The just God justly justifies unjust people and progressively makes us just, which entails that we support public justice as we await God's ultimate justice. Let's pray. We praise you, God, that you are just and that all your ways are justice. Thank you for justly justifying unjust people like us. Thank you for progressively making us just. Would you please 
Give us your heart for public justice, for impartiality in our society, and we eagerly await your coming, your coming ultimate justice for which you deserve glory for your wrath and power. Amen.